Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Ben Perkert. He is the author of The Men Can't Be Saved, which is published by our friends at the Overlook Press. Ben, welcome to the program. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Ben, the first thing that drew me to your book when I saw it is the big blurb on the front of the advanced reading copy by our friend and former guest Hanif Abdurraqib. Uh, do you know Hanif? And what does a blurb like this do for you as a debut novelist and note by the way that i did not say debut author because you do have a collection of poetry which is called for the love of endings wow you've done your research <laughs> i'm grateful right. um i mean hanif uh in addition to being one of my favorite writers mm. uh is is one of my dearest friends mm. he's he's been a champion of this book um really from the very beginning and having his words uh you know, great grace the book, um, and some other some other friends and writers that I admire too. Clint Smith gave mm-hmm. us a great blurb. Uh, Alexandra Kleeman and Antoine Wilson, and now I'm afraid of forgetting anyone. Kaba Akbar, mm-hmm. uh, Darren Strauss. So, you know, I, I think that you're right. I mean, I am a debut novelist, and I have gone through this process before publishing a book of poetry. But fiction is such a different world, and having the endorsement of a friend and a writer who you admire, uh, specifically in the case of someone like Hanif, it just means the whole world, right? Because when you're when you're debuting, you need that introduction. You need a writer that your readers are familiar with to sort of say, "Hey, you know, this is a book checking out, a, a book worth worth your time." So it, it means a whole lot. Absolutely. Thank you. And um, before we started recording, you and I spoke a little bit about basketball. And I always felt bad for Hanif being a Timberwolves fan, but I guess uh, this year is better than most for him. Um, <laughs> and it's still not great, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Exactly. Hey, uh, he's still in a world of pain. Yeah, before I moved to Colorado, I was a, I, you know, I lived in Charlotte Hornets territory, and that that's even worse than the Timberwolves. So, um it is what it is. Well, um, another blurb question. According to the blurb, and I'm now using blurb in the European sense, uh, on the back of your book, it says that your book is about what our jobs do to our souls. And outside of the context of your book, Ben, uh, what does a job, a regular nine to five type of job, or maybe a non-traditional retail or bartending job, uh, what do these jobs do to our souls and why do we put ourselves through it? Mm, that's a big question. Well, I think, you know, different people have different relationships with work Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm not qualified to speak on the subject of what labor does for each of us in what ways is it taxing and which, in what ways is it rewarding? Mm -hmm. I think in the example of my main character, Seth, from this novel, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for him, he doesn't hate his job, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He, he loves his job. Uh, it is so much a part of his identity, of his self-worth, such that when he loses that job, he's a tagline copywriter at an agency, um, which was a job that I held. It was my first job out of college. Yeah. And, you know, he holds it in such high esteem, right? 
mm-hmm. he has this tagline that goes viral. He feels like he's on the the cusp of making partner at the agency. And then, you know, not to give too much away with spoilers, when he loses that job, when he gets laid off, mm-hmm. he spirals because having worked there is such a huge part of his identity. It is such a huge part of his soul and who he is mm-hmm. that he really has to uh, confront the fact that what is he without that job? And my parents were laid off from their jobs when I was in high school. Hmm. And it's, a, you know, and right, I'm, I'm cognizant too of the fact that I started writing, I didn't start writing the book at, during the Great Recession, but that is when I worked at the agency. That's when I got my first job out of college. Hmm. And I saw people getting laid off all around me. And right now we're in a moment where media, tech, publishing, there are layoffs all the time. Um, I think that it can be an incredibly uh, devastating event, not only financially, obviously, right, which is why people work in the first place, but also just in terms of how do you define your identity if that thing that you do, nine to five, but also for many people, you know, with cell phones taking home their laptops, I mean, it can be nine to midnight, right? How do you not only fill the day, but also how do you fulfill or satisfy the conditions of, of a self? I think these are important questions. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, your novel opens with our protagonist, Seth, claiming uh, that he would like to claim that he knew an ad he wrote would go viral, uh, but he didn't know it would go viral. Why are some people, Ben, obsessed with posting something on social media that might go viral an ad executive or a copywriter i can understand but what is the motivation for the rest of us is it the desire for our 15 minutes of fame even if unless you are writing an advertisement that fame has no real monetary or social value Hmm. you know i think none of us think of it as 15 minutes of fame like Mm -hmm. we only call it 15 minutes of fame in hindsight right Mm -hmm. when we and i'm not i'm not putting myself above it when i when I'm on Twitter and I'm thinking to myself, ooh, Ben, this is a really great tweet. This is going to do numbers. Meanwhile, Elon Musk could give a fuck, right? No one even reads my tweets anymore. They're at the, the bottom of the timeline. Hmm. But, you know, there's an aspiration, I think, that a lot of people on social media feel where if I if I just say it right, if I get the right meme, if I, if I nail it, then I'm going to achieve fame. Hmm. But it's always 15 minutes. Like there's always a... a time period and it's often even shorter than 15 minutes it's it's you know half a minute it's a millisecond mm-hmm. so i think that social media is really an effective product in so far as it compels us to strive for something that is really almost always unachievable i don't know how many people get famous off a tweet and stay famous mm-hmm. i think that um there's a pretty short shelf life with that Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, The ad that Seth wrote uh, that went viral is for adult men's diapers. Um, Using this ad as an example uh, and as a window into Seth's character at the beginning of the novel, is this ad uh, for men's diapers, an ad that went viral, the result of talent, or is Seth the butt of a joke of his own making? Oh, I love that question. Uh, one of the writers who 
blurbed my book, Anton Wilson. He wrote a book called uh, Mouth to Mouth. I love that book. I had the chance to interview him for this Guernica interview series that I do called Backdraft. Uh, I've taken a, a step away from it now with, um, with with the demands of my own book. But when I was interviewing Antoine Wilson, he said this absolutely fascinating thing that has stuck with me about the first person versus the third person. Mm-hmm. How when you write in the first person, that's really the PR department. Like you never really get to know the true character. I mean, you get to know them in the sense of you're in their head, mm-hmm. but because it's in the first person, you know, they're very conscious of what they are sharing with you. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, that idea of first person as PR department, I had just never, I, I thought it was so smart. I'll never forget it. And the reason I bring it up is because it's a, it's an interesting question. You know, Seth would have us believe that this ad, this tagline for this really obscure brand of adult diaper, of men's adult diapers, really put him on the map and that he was on a trajectory of Don Draper-esque stardom within the agency world. But is that really true? Like, because the book is in first person, you know, I think we're smart to sort of question that, right? Because, I mean, let's be honest, it's just a tagline for some brand of adult diapers that no one's really heard of. So the PR department is telling us one thing, but as readers, I think we should remain a little skeptical. And that's part of the the joke, I think. That's part of the humor of the book. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, the next account that Seth uh, deals with in the novel is for a nonprofit that is dealing with prostate cancer. Um, is Seth specializing, moving from men's diapers to prostates uh or is he painting himself into a corner Hmm. well i don't think he's doing it of his own volition Mm -hmm. i think you know when his boss tells him i want you to focus on men's health you did a really good job on that men's adult diaper brand now let's see if you can crush it with this prostate cancer client Mm -hmm. i think that the boss is selling him on this idea of specialization, right? You could become our men's health expert. And Seth doesn't want to hear that because, you know, that feels like being pigeonholed. I mean, it's a, it's an awfully small industry when you compare it to the wide range of clients that an agency serves. Mm. So I think he's, it's less that he's painting himself into a corner more that he's being painted into it. I, I think we're meant to sort of wonder you know, what is, is, does the boss have Seth's best interests at heart? Or is he maybe sort of trying to limit the damage here? Because if Seth is not um, doing great work with clients, the best way to, to minimize that is to sort of shrink his section of the pie. And when I, I should say, when I worked at an agency, you know, I saw this shit happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the boss would call you in and say, Hey Ben, I mean, you know, this didn't happen to me specifically, but it's easy to imagine it. Hey Ben, uh, you know, we want you to work on, um, this particular segment of this particular industry. And you're going to be the, you're going to be the man in this little area. And at some point the fish pond grows so small that, you know, it's like (laughs) the walls are sort of shrinking around you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ben. We're going to return to some of these thoughts in a moment, including the concept of men's diapers. But first, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. 
and then I will be right back with Ben Perkert. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Ben Perkert, author of The Men Can't Be Saved, which is published by our friends at the Overlook Press. Ben, I promised we would return to the topic of men's diapers, and here we are. Uh, And I want to do so by way of speaking about potential literary influences. Uh, When I see men's diapers referenced at the beginning of a novel, my mind immediately jumps to David Foster Wallace's gargantuan novel, Infinite Jest. Uh, In Infinite Jest, every calendar year is sponsored, and the first year in the novel is the year of the Depends adult undergarment. Further, Wallace's last unfinished novel, The Pale King, is about boredom, specifically boredom in the workplace. In the case of this novel, it's uh, at the IRS. Um, My question, Ben, is was David Foster Wallace an influence for you? And either way, who are some of your other uh, favorite writers or influences, um, favorite writers, whether they influenced you or not? Hmm. You know, that's so funny. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't list David Foster Wallace as one of my main influences, though I am a huge admirer of his work and a huge admirer of his interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you watch those interviews. I remember he did that interview with uh, Charlie Rose and Jonathan Franzen, sort of a, a famous interview. There was one. Who was the other writer? You remember Mark Mark Lehman, maybe? I'm not totally sure. Yeah, I'm um, not sure. I mostly see the David Foster Wallace uh, clips. <laughs> Yeah, well, the bandana, he's hard to miss. Right. Um, I mean, I think part of what I love about David Foster Wallace, uh, though, again, you know, he's he's not top of my bookshelf, but I think he just really, um, like, when you think about, you know, when, when he was doing a lot of his writing in, like, the 90s, there was definitely a contingent of the literary world that didn't want to have to engage with video games, that didn't want to have to engage with TV, that sort of like looked down on those forms of media. And Wallace was sort of revolutionary, not that he was the only one saying this, but um, he took it seriously, you know? And, And that, I think, is an ethos that I really vibe with. Hmm. Um, men's adult diapers, right? Like, on the one hand, it is sort of a punchline, you know, mm-hmm. Seth being so proud of his work on this brand um, for something as lowbrow as as a men's adult diaper brand. Like there is a comedy there, but um, I don't think, it, you know, I, I, I don't think it, it's punching down. Like I think that, you know, a men's adult diaper brand, like they're as deserving as, of a good tagline as any other brand. Mm-hmm. And so if there is some inheritance um, from Wallace that, that the book has, I think it is that commitment to uh, looking as seriously at the low as the high, or at least like 
problematizing that binary that we have where certain things are um are certain things are high and certain things are low do you know what i'm saying even even just like even even the interest in advertising and taglines like the book you know there's a few paragraphs about mcdonald's Mm -hmm. and that tagline i'm loving it Mm -hmm. and the choice to be lowercase there like who who is being ventriloquized like what what corporate branding executive decided that McDonald's needed a tagline that sounded like it was a teenager speaking. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? Um, what is that as performance? What is that ethically? What is that economically? Um, I'm not saying that David Foster Wallace would have written about the McDonald's tagline, but it definitely doesn't feel too far from um, what I understood to be some of you know his most interesting work. Mm. Yeah. Every time I hear about a McDonald's advertisement, by the way, this is a very much an aside, but there was an old ad back when uh, Kobe Bryant was a McDonald's sponsor and they flashed a McDonald's sign onto the screen. And instead of saying McDonald's under the arches, it said emergency for a split second. And I guess everyone was supposed to be like, oh, my God, I have to go get a Big Mac right now. Um, It's just one of those kind of weird things that I caught for a split second. well, anyway, uh, thank you, Ben. And speaking a little bit more about literary titans, um, Seth reminds me of a Nabokovian protagonist a little bit, um, specifically when he says uh, his boss is a boss in name only, uh, that he, Diego, his boss, has an apprentice's disposition. Um, this seems like something I would read in uh, Pale Fire or something along those lines. Um, is Seth a reliable narrator? Is he a self-aware narrator? And is it a good idea to approach one's boss as if they have an apprentice's disposition? <laughs> well, I think to answer the last question, no, right? <laughs> like you're allowed to think of your boss um, whatever you want to think of them. But mm-hmm. insofar as a book is, you know, insofar as Seth is speaking out loud, he should probably be keeping these thoughts to himself. Mm-hmm. First, let me say, you know, the the Nabokov, uh, you know, similarity or likeness. I mean, th- there's no greater honor. And a book that I held close while writing mine was Penin. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've read it, but, yeah. um, you know, a ridiculous narrator, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think we talk a lot about the unreliable narrator, as we should. But I also think that I would characterize Seth that way for sure, because he gets a lot of things wrong. Um, but there is also just like the joy of the ridiculous narrator. And Penin is such a ridiculous character, mm-hmm. even when he's right about things. Um, and so I, when I think about books that I love, a book like Penin, for example, mm-hmm. I want to spend time with uh, a protagonist whose mind is strange. Like I, I want to be in that in that headspace, um, because that to me is is part of the joy of the journey. Like there's the plot, yes, but I also want to see, you know, how, how is this person thinking? What are they deceived about? Um, for me, there was a lot of joy in writing Seth, insofar as I was very cognizant of the fact that I was writing through his perspective, but I also have all these other characters at my disposal, and the other characters can reveal all the ways in which Seth is deluded, either by his own narcissism or you know what, whatever it else it may be. So, you know, I think, <laughs> but yeah, no, as, as just like a a, a point of. Um, I don't know, 
uh, as a piece of advice to listeners, if you think your boss is an idiot, probably best not to say it out loud or even in the group chat, you know, probably best to switch jobs also. Yeah. If you can, Um, if you have that luxury. Right. Right on. Um, Well, to ask a question that you ask uh, in your novel from the perspective of an ad man, are nonprofits the worst customers? Is this true or false? (laughs) From my own perspective? Yeah, sure. You know what? Mm. I think they are, Mm. actually. I think they are for a couple reasons. Mm. I so when I worked at at um when I worked at the the branding agency that I worked for, there were a lot of clients that frankly I just didn't give a shit about. I mean, Mm. I just I, I and by that I mean I don't want to sound like a jerk, but they had products that um we're not really making the world better, right? Mm. Um, Exxon Mobil has a, a new um, additive for their gasoline and they want someone to name it. I'm not going to feel good about myself doing that kind of work, right? Mm. Um, but then sometimes there were these amazing occasions where a nonprofit client would want your services. Mm. Uh, I worked on the branding campaign for, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a big climate summit through the UN in 2015 called mm-hmm. like the Copenhagen. It, it was like this big summit that was supposed to fix climate change. Mm-hmm. And we had the account to work on that. And I cared so deeply about it. Um, I remember, I mean, a lot of times I would stay up late working for clients, but rarely did I feel the kind of emotional investment as I did for that project, something mm-hmm. that I care deeply about politically. Um, and it felt like, you know, this was finally an opportunity to take the work that I did at the agency and make it meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are some issues there, right? The nonprofits often don't have budget. So we went over budget criminally. Mm-hmm. Um, it cost the agency a lot of money because all the, especially like the young copywriters and young graphic designers, we were all just burning tons of hours on this project when there was like one millionth of the budget. Hmm. Um, and, you know, oftentimes nonprofits, in my experience, not to like malign anyone, but they know they know what they're doing. They're savvy and they want they want really good work for cheap. So uh, in my experience, it was an exercise often in frustration because I cared a lot about the project hmm. and they didn't have the money to compensate it, to compensate us for it. And so it often felt like both parties left more um, disillusioned as a consequence. That's the honest truth. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Um, Let's spin off of this kind of for a moment and talk about value and capitalism. Um, If we were to reset everyone uh, in the United States of America's pay rate to zero and then redistribute pay according to positions that were valued to American society as a whole, who would get paid more, an advertising executive or a barista? Hmm. This is like a very, it's been a long time since I took a class called Justice, where we mm-hmm. would read like John Rawls and mm-hmm. um, and Hume and Locke and all these people. So you're taking me to an interesting place. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, I, I mean, like, just to zoom out, right? I'm a novelist. I'm not, I'm not an expert. Yeah. And for our <laughs> listeners, let me specify, I'm asking this question because Seth, uh, when he uh, loses his job as an advertising executive, he begins to work as a barista. 
Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, it would be nice. And I don't say that in a flippant way. I, I mean it. It would be nice mm-hmm. if people were compensated in a way that corresponded to the value that they contribute to society and to the environment and to community, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like this is something that we became really, we had a heightened awareness of um, during the pandemic. You know, the people who work as, um, you know, as, as checkout clerks in the grocery store, the people who work as bus drivers, the people who work as nurses, the people who work as, you know, all of these essential jobs. Well, why the fuck are we not paying them as if they are essential? Why, why are we paying the minimum wage? I mean, I say we and them, I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. Pronouns are incidental. Why? Why are? Um, if you really believe that someone's job is essential, then shouldn't you be compensating them at a level that uh, respects and honors that? What is the value of of an ad man? Um, I don't know, but I do know that during the pandemic, it didn't feel quite as essential, right? Mm-hmm. So um, when. And, you know, I want to be really clear, right? Like my life is my life. Seth is a fictional character. Yeah, of course. But um, it is true that I worked as a barista when I was mm-hmm. in grad school for creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a satisfaction in, like I, I was a shitty, I was actually a decent barista, mm-hmm. but I was terrible working the, the cash register. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we didn't have budget enough to have one person on bar, one person on register. So I would just be, I was happy making the drinks, but then someone would come in with a new order and it's like, you got to wash your hands. You got to like, I, I was awful at toggling back and forth. I'm My wife will tell you I'm like the worst multitasker. So it just mm-hmm. didn't play to my strengths, but there was a satisfaction to someone walks in and they want an Americano with soy milk and they want, you know, a shot of mocha or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And you make that drink and you hand that drink over and then you watch that person hopefully not spit it back in your face. Hopefully you got the order right. But mm-hmm. they're they're enjoying what you made for them. You, you made a real product that has calories, that has some value. Um, and writing taglines like I did, I never felt that way. Mm-hmm. I never felt like I was delivering anything of, of substance. And partially that's because if you think about what a brand is, I mean, a brand just like etymolo- et, you know, the, the etymology of the word, I mean, it's a, it's a burn at the skin level. It's all surface. Mm-hmm. So I might have felt satisfied with myself. Ooh, this is a really creative tagline that I just came up with. But it certainly didn't feed anyone. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Um, I want to touch on this part of the novel for a moment. Seth has multiple workplace romances in this novel. Um, is it ever a good idea to enter into a workplace romance, what percentage <laughs> of these romances do you think work out? Hmm. Well, it's, you know, again, I, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the person who wrote a single story and I don't want to mm-hmm. generalize. And I uh, have some dear friends who met their spouse through, through work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also complicated again by the fact that post pandemic, how often are people working in the same office? You know, is it five days a week now? Is it one day a week? Is it entirely remote? So I I think that- Do you think anyone has met their soulmate over Zoom? 
Yeah. <laughs> Almost Zoom steals all of our souls. So yeah, it, there you go. it may be impossible. <laughs> um, I think it's fraught territory, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I think that that's also, you know, a little bit what makes it exciting. Yeah. And, you know, like Ann Carson, the poet Ann Carson, she talks about um, the definition of Eros as the lover, the beloved, and then that which comes between them. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no doubt something erotic about having a crush on your coworker, knowing that you're not supposed to, right? This is, you know, this is forbidden. What if the boss found out? What if, you know, whoever else found out? I, I don't think we should deny the fact that there is something sexy there. Uh, but it's also, you know, when we think about the ways in which power imbalances often work out, um, when we think about the ways in which misogyny and um, harassment, you know, can often take place in these environments. Like one of the things that motivated me to write the novel was I watched the show Mad Men and I loved the show, but it's clear watching that show that really there hasn't been that much progress from the 1960s to now. I worked with people that, and I'm not naming names, but, you know, that that were every bit as toxic as some of the characters that we see on Mad Men. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not here to say that getting into an office relationship is a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely um, it's definitely a fraught road. Um, and I think, you know, adults need to enter into those situations um, with their eyes wide open because otherwise, you know, people get hurt and um, oftentimes abuse and, and harassment are not far behind. For Seth, it doesn't really work out so great. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I would just throw that out there too. Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Um, finally, and listeners, this book, The Men Can't Be Sable, undoubtedly uh, not only be one of the best debut novels of the year, but one of the best novels of the year. Um, but we've talked about this a, uh, a little bit earlier when we were mentioning David Foster Wallace, Ben, and I want to talk about video games as a medium. Uh, writing in novels has always mostly been great uh, you know if you're a writer and you get a novel published you're, you're doing something correctly um, there were some golden years which we haven't entirely gotten out of uh, but which I feel like we're on the back end of when television writing was debatably uh, on par or better thinking about the Sopranos the Wire Mad Men Breaking Bad etc um, and now video game writing is great and I mean one of the best television series of the past year the last of us on HBO is basically a direct rip um, from the story that took place in a video game uh, with a few embellishments here and there the video game braid is referenced in your novel uh, what is the current state of video game writing in your opinion and braid is a bit of a callback for many of us but what part do video games have to play in your novel hmm you know, it's so funny, right? Because parts of um, the novel really um, are very close to my own experiences. I worked as a branding copywriter, as a tagline copywriter. I then worked as a barista. Mm-hmm. Um, I've This is later in the book where the character gets really involved in Chabad. I myself have had, you know, experiences with Chabad. Mm-hmm. Um Video game, but then other parts of a novel, you know, you have to research and you Mm kind of get into not through your own life experience, but just through uh, a desire to want to know more about something. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was video game. Um, I 
had a, I have, I'm like not a huge gamer myself. Um, but I had this friend from high school who was telling me about why he loves video games so much. And he was describing this game brave mm -hmm. and he talked about it, particularly in terms of the passage of time and how there's this level in braid where you cannot go backward in time. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you move in certain directions, it like reverses the flow of time. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, that is so amazing. I want to learn more about this. I want to play this game. I want to. And so I didn't enter into, um, you know, all of that, knowing that it would make its way into the novel. I wasn't sure that it would, or it, I, I was just sort of interested, right? It's one of those things where it's like you spend, you know, you log on to Wikipedia at 11 o'clock at night. And then the next thing you know, it's the morning and you've just consumed a whole lot of video game information that you didn't have before. So I don't know if I'm your man to talk about what the state of video game writing is today mm -hmm. um, versus like prestige TV. I'm interested in that conversation, but I will say that um, I've been really interested to see how different writers have brought video game content into the novel. And I mm -hmm. think that that's something we're going to see more of. Yeah. And then, um, you know, just to flesh that question out just a little bit more, what role does video games play in your novel? for our listeners who are unaware. Yeah. So after, and there's not too much of a spoiler, but um, after it, it, after you read the first couple of pages of my book, you'll see that Seth has a, he's awfully cocky, but he's about to go for a pretty big downfall pretty quickly. So after he loses the job and he ends up as a barista, um, he meets uh, a character, Ramya, who he quickly falls in love with. And she is a diehard video gamer. Um, and she's, uh, you know, she, she tells him all about the different video games and especially games that make use of, um, algorithms and, and can sort of like reproduce their own landscapes infinitely. So anytime you log into the game, you're seeing a different universe that theoretically has no boundaries. It's, it's like an infinite world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that for our main character, Seth, that idea of an infinite world um is really attractive because he's you know he, he's coming from a place where he identified himself so strongly by his job by his role um writing taglines was for him a way to attach himself to something larger to have his words endure and then to lose all that um but find himself playing video games with his girlfriend in this very different situation something just about like the visual of Seth as this tiny little character on this, you know, infinite plane, mm -hmm. um, I think is, is, is an important visual for, for the book in terms of self-determination and where he's going to go next. He can go everywhere, but on the other hand, um, he's still in the game. Right. And so he, he, he has to play it to the extent that he can. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. Ben. Listeners, I've been speaking with Ben Perkert, author of The Men Can't Be Saved, which is published by our friends at the Overlook Press. Ben, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Ben Perkert for joining me. Copies of The Men Can't Be Saved can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. 
would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro FM and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.